You're listening to Engaging Leader. Today we're talking about three ways to become a resident leader, featuring Dr. Richard Boyatzis, author of the international bestseller, Primal Leadership. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. Today, we'll be discussing how leaders inspire people through emotional intelligence, and specifically how we can become what has been called a resonant leader. To help us address those issues, our guest today is Dr. Richard Boyatzis. He is professor in the Departments of Organizational Behavior, Psychology, and Cognitive Science at Case Western Reserve University. He is the author of more than 150 articles on leadership, competencies, emotional intelligence, coaching, and management education. His books include Becoming a Resident Leader and the international bestseller Primal Leadership. In addition to teaching at Case Western Reserve, Richard also teaches a class through the company Coursera, which is a massive open online course, also called a MOOC. The title of that class is Inspiring Leadership Through Emotional Intelligence. And these classes are rather amazing. There's tens of thousands of people participating in this class as well as others. It could say something about the future of higher education. So I'm sure that trend will pop up a few times in our conversation today. Richard Boyatzis, welcome to Engaging Leader. Thank you, Jesse. Can you tell us from your research, what is the one thing that most influences a company's bottom line performance? Leadership. Uh, effective leadership will activate all five sources of capital at a leader's disposal to get performance. And if it's effective leadership, they will have greater forms of capital at the end of a year or any performance period, not just spending the capital. And, and we see this all the time where it's not an issue of just making money because it really is easy to make money in this world. Um, what's hard to do is to continue making money over time, adapting to changing marketplaces and conditions and technology. And most organizations are underled or poorly led. And as a result, they're underperforming given the resources that they have. The difference is the quality of the leadership. And I don't just mean the CEO. I mean, this is leadership all the way down to uh, the foreman on the production line or a uh, sales branch manager. I mean, it's anybody who's in a position of influence sets the atmosphere such that people are able to engage and bring their juice to work, you know, and and, uh, give it their all. Now, a lot of your research has pointed to emotional leadership as the major lack, I guess, among leaders. Does that just mean putting on a game face every day? (laughs) No, because actually putting a game face is uh, baloney. (laughs) People are uh, neurologically hardwired to pick up both the actions of others and the emotions of others. And the research has shown that unless you've got some autism spectrum disorder uh, or, I mean, even psychopaths pick it up. They don't pay attention to it, but they pick it up. But most of the people on earth are tuned in to the people around them. And that's hardwired. 
And what that means, and by the way, the uh, picking up these messages from each other, from our brains, happens in milliseconds. This is way below consciousness. So even if you try to put on a game face, people actually sense what you're really feeling. Um, what can what very often confuses them is if you have a face that is different than the feeling they're picking up from you. Uh, they, unless they're well skilled in this, they don't know whether to attribute that to you or there's something wrong with them. So it does not have to do with a game face. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, the central issue that we talk about is you can't have effective leadership without really good relationships because otherwise who would want to follow you? Uh, and you can't be an effective leader unless these relationships are tuning in to the people around you and vice versa. So it does have to do with emotions in the sense that there are some very deep, very immediate neurological connections, but it also has to do with your relationships. So it's uh, what we often call combination of a person's talent. Yes, you need some cognitive ability to be an effective leader, and you need some emotional intelligence, and you need some social intelligence. Without those things, you're not activating the capital of the people around you. So can you give us an overview of what you mean by emotional intelligence? I just did. (laughs) You know, emotional intelligence is the intelligent use of your emotions. But we start with the observation that you're going through all sorts of feelings at a very fast speed below your consciousness level. So, in fact, more effective leaders are often tuned in. The jargony phrase people are using today is um, mindful, which means tuned in or self-aware. Because you can't intelligently... Uh, use your emotions or manage them unless you know they're there. Mm-hmm. And people who are more mindless, who don't pay attention to what they're feeling, are just idiots. I mean, there's no two ways around it. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, we see all sorts of television characters uh, from Doc Martin on uh, the series of the same name from the BBC or um, the character in Bones that Emily Deschanel plays that Kathy Reichs created. Uh, or Commander Data in Star Trek, people who can't establish emotional bonds well end up coming across as distant. And although they may be bright or nice or caring, they have difficulty keeping relationships going. And the magic of organizations, of families, of teams are our relationships. So emotional intelligence is managing somehow being aware of and managing your emotions effectively towards some social good, towards some shared objective, whether that's in the family or in a work organization. And then the extension of that, which is moves into what we now call the social intelligence realm, which involves some different neural networks and some different hormones. But these are the places where people are tuning into and dealing with the emotions of others effectively. Uh, and all of that conspires to, if it works well, to a more kind of in sync set of relationships in which you feel like you're in tune with the people around you. And and that really is at the heart of it. And if you're not aware of all of these things, then, you know, you're going through life like, duh, well, why did that happen? (laughs) Look, emotions are contagious. And that's what I've just been saying. Mm. And it is contagious below your consciousness. And it is contagious unless you have some neurological disorder. Um, it is contagious. It's, it, you're hardwired. Humans are hardwired. So if somebody says, I'm not going to pay attention to emotions, I figured I'm listening to an idiot because um, that means that a person wants to cut off 
in a sense, half of their brain functioning, half of the information coming into them, and most of the information that's key in their relationships. I mean, look, 60 years of research in social psychology keeps showing us that people don't make decisions or get influenced by rational arguments. They make decisions and get influenced by emotional arguments, and then you use rational arguments afterwards to make yourself feel better. <laughs> and, you know, and a person in a leadership role or influence role um, is more contagious. Why? Well, I mean, you know, kids do turn to their parents to find out how they're reacting. You know, people in an organization turn to the boss often to see what's going on. How do I interpret this? So as a result, the people in the higher positions of responsibility, parents, teachers, um, clerics of any sort, uh, helpers, managers and executives, we're more contagious than others. So that's why it's even more important that we understand our emotions and are somehow on top of our relationships. And what we find is in those organizations that don't seem to be able to handle that, they're underperforming. And eventually they lose touch with their market, lose touch with their customers, and competitors take over their business. But there's this problem, I think you call it CEO disease, but it seems like it affects every level of leadership, whether you are the CEO or maybe to a lesser extent if you're a line supervisor, but also for parents where you don't get as much feedback and intelligence about other people's feelings. It's harder to have that empathy because people aren't as forthcoming. So what can someone in a leadership position do? Well, Jesse, there's a number of reasons, which I'm sure you experience all the time. One is, look, things that don't go well are not things that we gravitate toward. Because on the whole, we'd, you know, we'd like to feel positive more than negative. And unless you're into whips and chains as a hobby, uh, you're not really <laughs> going to look for things that hurt. So given that, um, you know, that pulls us away from conflict. On the other hand, you know, there is a deep ecological need for us as organisms to stay alive. I mean, in my uh, intentional change theory, I talk about how people are pulled either towards the positive or, emo or negative emotional attractor. And the positive emotional attractor is really being in the parasympathetic nervous system, that part of your neuroendocrine processes that allow you to rebuild the body, including the brain create new neural tissue and all that, help your immune system, versus the sympathetic nervous system, which is the stress response. And, you know, one helps you to focus on possibilities, the other problems. One on hope, the other fear. One on optimism, the other pessimism. One on strengths, one on weaknesses. But the key is we need both. Unless we spend time in the negative emotional attractor, in the stress response, we won't survive because we will be fodder for threats out there. We won't notice when somebody's about to bite us, eat us, fire us, divorce us. So we need the negative emotional attractor. We need these negative experiences to protect the organism. But because negative emotions have been shown in much research over the past 15, 20 years to be much stronger than positive emotions, if we are truly to help a person balance their different neurological and hormonal states, we have to sample more of the positive emotional attractor. Um, so some researchers have talked about a three to one ratio or a five to one ratio. I don't, I don't know what exactly it is. And some of our neurological research are suggesting three to one works pretty powerfully in coaching and helping and advising studies we've been doing. But 
the fact is that you need the negative. So while you, it's uncomfortable, and unless you're a pessimist, you're not going to want to go there. And if you're a pessimist, you're going to expect it. We need it. And a study came out in 1991 showing that effective managers spend more time soliciting negative feedback, finding out what went wrong. I think that's because, on the whole, people around someone don't want to make them feel bad. Uh, or, or it could be what I call the Tony Soprano syndrome. Who, who wants to give Tony Soprano bad news? Um, it could also be out of respect. You, you don't want to hurt their feelings. So all of those things conspire to have most of us give biased information to the people that are above us. And that results in their having a jaundiced view of what's going on and very often not helping them understand the various complexities and dimensions of what's going on. In Primal Leadership, the book, we talked about that as what happens when people believe their reviews. And very (laughs) often that leads to a demagogue. Somebody who thinks they're phenomenal because the people around them keep stroking them and, you know, waving palm fronds and singing hosannas to their brilliance. (laughs) But they don't realize that a lot of people out there, other stakeholders, don't like them or don't respect them. So it's a matter of widening the net in terms of the feedback that you solicit and also somehow getting the people closer to you to feel like it's okay to, to tell you bad news. Yeah, and that's not going to happen if you're, you know, if you're uptight, if you're a punishing person, and if people think you're going to bite their head off if they say something conflicting or conflictful to you, then guess what? People aren't stupid. They won't say anything that way. So part of it is you have to have, uh, we say in these resonant leader relationships, people create a more inviting environment in which, you know, there's, there's more of an open exchange of information across levels between people. Dissonant leaders, people who are on the whole negative and uh, very often push people around or threaten them, they end up turning people off. I mean, there's an exercise I do in the first um, video on this MOOC, but I often do it in my lectures and, and speeches around the world, in which I ask somebody to think about a leader in their life that they worked with or for any time in their life, not just work, uh, that brought out the best in them. And I think of a specific person. Then think of a specific person who did not, who you thought was a lump. Whatever they were paid, it was too much. <laughs> but you have to think of specific people for this exercise to work. And then underneath each of their names, you know, write down what it was like to be around them. What did they typically say or do? How did they make you and other people around them feel? And one of the things you'll discover right away, and I've done this exercise on seven continents and over 60-some countries and, well... I guess now with over 80,000 students, given the MOOC. (laughs) And one of the things that becomes clear is the effective leaders, the ones who activate your potential and bring out the best in you, are the ones who build a relationship with you. What people say is they empowered me, they challenged me, they questioned me, but they believed in me. They, They gave me opportunities. They trusted me. They asked for my views on things. They were passionate. They had fun. They were playful. Uh, They trusted me to do my job. They didn't hover. All these things that had to do with the quality of relationship. And the ineffective leaders were the ones who were negative, nasty, egocentric, only talked about the tasks, you know, didn't care about the people and uh, micromanagers and all these kinds of things. So you see this basic notion of is a leader 
inspiring others? Are they lifting them up? Are they engaging them and challenging them? It may not always be in a positive way. Sometimes it's negative. But if it's with an underlying trust and belief in the other person, if it's toward a shared vision that embodies the more noble aspects of the human spirit and hope, and, and really that's what a number of our articles in our 2005 book, Resonant Leadership, was all about is that the most effective leaders somehow engage hope through sense of purpose and vision and the experience of it, uh, engage in compassion, not just understanding, but caring, are mindful. They have a certain degree of genuineness and authenticity and integrity. And often they're playful. And, and these experiences turn out to also be the ones that not only help us build better relationships, but also help the human body go into the parasympathetic nervous system, which allows us to rebuild. You know, our immune system clicks in gear and helps, and we experience the growth of new neural tissue through neurogenesis and things like that. So it is pretty important, and the contrast is stark. Uh, Maya Angelou gave a commencement address here at uh, Case Western Reserve University a few years back, and, and I love this one line she said. I mean, I was so moved at the time, I quickly reached all, you know, through my uh, academic gowns to find my pen and a piece of paper. <laughs> she said, it is my observation that in the future, they will not remember what you did. They will not remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. Hmm. So the appeal that we have is not that emotions are more important than what you might think of as intellectual or cognitive processing. Uh, first of all, as a neuroscientist, as somebody who spends a certain amount of time every few months doing studies of brain functioning, uh, I can assure you there is no event that happens in your mind that doesn't involve emotions. So this, this artificial difference between something cognitive and something affective is actually foolish. The brain works through networks. It doesn't work through particular neurons or um, just uh, some region of the brain. And these networks are complex, and they involve a lot of parts of the brain. Uh, so when you start to think about it that way, you realize that what we need to do is get on top of this whole emotional, relational thing, because for too long, we let ourselves in the last 100 or 150 years be seduced by the notion that somehow it's all an abstract thinking exercise, when of course that's important, but it's more than that. When I first learned of your research and the research by Daniel Goleman and others on emotional leadership, my first thought was, oh, that's wonderful. They're finally saying that nice people make better leaders, that good business results come from being a nicer person, which sort of intuitively related back to everything I had always felt and perhaps learned all the way back maybe in Sunday school. But I guess also having experienced business in the 80s and and 90s, and you saw a lot of examples of CEOs who often acted like jerks but seemed to achieve great business results, it made me, I was a little skeptical. And I wonder, how do you explain some of those examples? No, I understand, Jesse. That, I get the question a lot. But first, let me reassure you that what we're talking about is probability. We're not talking about universality. So we're not saying that um, somebody can be horrible and never make money at it. So on the whole, it's not sustainable is the issue. Mm. Steve Jobs failed in the first time he was at Apple. 
he failed in his in a number of his other ventures before he returned and in what one of my EMBA student groups who studied what they called Steve Jobs 1, Steve Jobs 2, and Steve Jobs 3, the three <laughs> eras of Steve Jobs. And their contention was the first two were dissonant and he wasn't succeeding. And the third was after he was back at Apple and he started to change his style. Even in his biography, he talks about that. Mm-hmm. You know, he got married, he had a daughter, he got cancer, not necessarily in that order, but at any rate, But there were things that all of a sudden made him appreciate the humans around him. And I'm not saying he still wasn't a fanatic about brand and customer friendliness. He was, thank God. I mean, I enjoy all of the products of Apple and and all the rest of it. But um, it was different. People who reported to him in these different eras talked about it as if it was almost a, a different person. I mean, I contend we saw the same thing with Jack Welsh in the 80s and 90s. You know, at first he took over as General Electric and it was, you know, Neutron Jack, a dissonant leader, mm-hmm. one or two in the industry and or we sell you, rank order the people, lop off the bottom 10%. And then he had a transformative experience and started spending one, almost a day a week at their management leadership training facility, writing personal notes to people. And, you know, he became a different kind of leader endorsed workout in a very active way. Um, I think that second Jack Welsh was the one who really helped General Electric become the powerhouse it is, not the first one. Now, he may have needed the first one to get ready for the second, and I'm not denying that that sometimes happens, but, uh, you know, I raised this question about a lot of high-tech firms. You know, we look at John Chambers of Cisco Systems as a very resonant leader, powerful. I mean, I know because... Uh, One of the senior HR people is one of my doctoral students right now, and we're talking about this. And they keep a huge percentage. I think it averages like 75% or something like that or 80% of the key players, the executives and key professionals of companies they acquired stay beyond the buyout period. That's unheard of in that industry. I mean, in, you know, his kind of opposite number uh, in the sense of the bad boy of high tech uh, Larry Ellison of Oracle, I mean, they don't even stay for the beginning of the buyout period. They just run for the hills um, whenever he announces an acquisition, even before it's done. So guess what? You know, I mean, Oracle's making money, kind of, but I think they're destined to spend more time wasting human capital and ideas and eventually markets. People will take their market. What guidelines do you suggest for us who would like to be resident leaders? Yeah, I think it behooves you to say, okay, I've got to focus on the people and the relationships, not just on the numbers. I mean, one of my colleagues uh, that I work with here at Case, who's uh, in the cognitive science department, Tony Jack, had an article that was published just last year in NeuroImage, in which he showed that when you give people analytic problems, You activate what's called the task positive network in the brain. It's a subset of the executive function. And when you give them social issues, uh, social problems, people asking for help, people feeling bad and crying, uh, you activate a different network called, he calls the social network, part of the default subset of the default mode network in the brain. What he showed is that these two networks have almost no overlap. Hmm. That was known before. But what he showed that was really important, it's getting a huge amount of press 
is that these two networks suppress each other. So yes, numbers and financials are important for people in positions of responsibility, but if that's all you think about, you've lost the juice. You know, you, you've lost the resources that you need to make it keep happening. So I say with complete confidence, show me a leader or a manager who starts their meetings with financials and I'll show you an ineffective leader. Mm. They're boring. And it's not because they weren't once effective, but they've lost it. And, and the reason I say is because they're confusing everyone around them with the measure of effectiveness. Are we making money? Are we making as much money as we thought? With the purpose of the organization, why do we exist? Who are we trying to serve? What are we trying to create? What can we do to get started to be more resident as leaders? Well, I could have been cheeky and say buy my books, but that's... <laughs> That is self-serving. No, the the uh, the MOOC, uh, the Coursera course is free, so that there's that. No, but I think part of it is think about these things, reflect on them. You know, you could do it by reading. You could do it by going to classes. Um, in in most universities around the world, there are executive education short courses, one day, three day, ten day, that you could do. Um, pick these things, and now with online learning, there are more and more of these free opportunities. To spend time thinking about it and then reflecting. Because when all is said and done, you're never going to get very far just by thinking about it. You need to be talking to other people. Um, I mean, I, I, I joke, uh, actually not so much of a joke, it's pretty serious these days, is that you know the biggest loss that we've had in the last 20 or 30 or 40 years is that we don't have friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have people you text and you have people you email, but... How often do you get just get together with folks and catch up, you know, in a relaxed way? The power of Sex in the City, the TV show, wasn't that it was about sex and wasn't that it was about New York City. It was that it was about four friends who did something that a lot of us wished we had more time for. Well, what I'm saying is make time for it, you know, because having these chats, whether it's over lo- a longer lunch or coffee or just spending an evening talking with people over dinner. That's what really life is about. And that's what helps us, turns out, build these better relationships. It's that kind of interaction with others that is the starting point. So whether you start with self-reflection or you start with chatting with others about reflective topics, either way begins the process of exploration. And when you do, the thing that's amazing is as you start to have some of your relationships catch fire, as they start to rekindle this excitement, what happens is you become emotionally contagious, but in a very positive way. And you start to find these relationships igniting all sorts of energy and hope and in your families and your communities and at work. People are able to do things together you never thought before were possible. So that's what I think we should be doing. Oh, that's interesting. So reading and learning is the first step. Uh, Reflecting, especially self-reflection, and then actually just making some time to relate, enjoy the relationships that you have, engage in some group reflection uh, type activities. That sequence works for somebody who's abstract in their learning style. If you're more concrete or active in your learning style, it's the reverse talk to people about this stuff, then reflect, then read about it. So uh, depending upon your learning style, it could go one direction or the other, but either way could work immensely. 
It's interesting that those are fairly easy, everyday things that we can do. It wasn't that you gave us five steps that we had to go uh, do in the workplace, for example. You don't have to go on a silent retreat for one month in the Himalayas. No, you don't. (laughs) I mean, one of the things I say about this stuff is it's common sense. It's just not common practice. That's right. And we let all sorts of busyness and stress seduce us from doing what we know in our hearts is right. Richard, where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, of course, there's an inevitable internet, but um, the easiest (laughs) way probably is to access some of, if you're a practitioner, some of the practitioner books like Primal Leadership or Resonant Leadership or Becoming a Resonant Leader, which are eminently available on Amazon, as well as your local bookstore. I've been doing this free online course for Coursera in my university, Case Western Reserve, in a partnership called Inspiring Leadership Through Emotional Intelligence. People can sign on to that. And, uh, you know, I don't know if we'll do another cycle of it next fall or winter, but we may. And then, of course, there are things here at Case Western Reserve University, master's programs, you know, in OD uh, that people learn about a lot of this detail. And the average age of our students is in their 40s. Same thing, we have an executive doctorate where the average age is closer to 48, where people fly in for a few days every six weeks or three months and go through kind of hybrid learning. And then there are, you know, shorter courses through things like executive education. A lot of my colleagues, folks I do a lot of this research and writing and teaching with, teach these courses here at our executive education center. And people can access that online. If they go into uh, Case Western Reserve University, uh, within the Weatherhead School of Management. And if they go on to executive education, they'll find out more details about emotional intelligence, the leadership, the coaching, the change courses, and so forth. Excellent. And we will put the links to those resources in our show notes as well. Richard Boyatzis, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Jesse, it was delightful. Thank you. We've discussed three ways to become a resonant leader, but if you'd like to go deeper, be sure to check out Becoming a Resonant Leader, which is a hands-on guide that Richard and his colleagues wrote, organized around a core of experience-tested exercises. If you prefer watching videos over reading, you may be interested in the free online course that Richard mentioned. Even if you miss the official course time frame, you can watch the video lectures at any time. Again, those links will be on our show notes. And while you're on our website, you can get a free download of my ebook, Eight Communication Tools for Leaders, Become a Better Leader in Every Area of Life. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at aspendalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.